this week, this psalm, uh, I've realized something. We live in a culture that capitalizes on our shame. And I think social media has a big role to play in that, right? You can't post anything without a filter, without the right pose, and you, you have to angle things a certain way to make sure that what you're presenting is something that you want other people to really see. You don't want them to see the mess in the background, so you turn the camera a little bit. Uh, you don't want them to see a certain thing on your body, so you distort it. Uh, you have a filter, your friends have filters, and, and if you're not wearing a filter, you're gonna wear a full face of makeup, or you're gonna grow a beard, or you're gonna do something to cover up what you don't like, or, right? You, you, you have to disguise yourself. And, and the reality is, is that we, we start to feel this sense of shame, I think, or this sense of guilt, this sense of, of not being good enough, not being satisfying to someone else in, in some sense, not really being satisfied with ourselves. And marketing does this to us too, right? Marketing does this in a way that, now it's not just like wear this makeup because it'll make you look beautiful. Wear this makeup because you're not beautiful enough. Right, or guys, you probably get the same ads I do, like, like these ads for these supplements, like take these supplements because you're losing your hair. You don't want to look that way. Right? There's a sense in which it attacks us, like our, our sense of identity almost. Like we start to feel this sense of shame and, and like we're not good enough. And shame does this crazy thing where it pushes us away from people, right? It, it, it takes us back. It, it makes us isolate and pull away. And we start to have this lower and lower view of who we are. We start to devalue ourselves. You look in the mirror and we don't like what we see. We look in the mirror and we don't think what we see is really worthy of anything. And see, last week we talked about Psalm 18. And if you weren't here, Psalm 18 is this triumphant praise to God. King David, the king of Israel, is declaring that God has been his defender through everything. God has set him free. God has protected him. God has made him victorious in battle. And when we hear that, we think that maybe, maybe David was just this guy who was worthy to be defended. Maybe David was this, he's the king of Israel. Of course God protected him. Of course God would be his defender. As we look at, at Psalm 18 and we see this picture of this mighty and righteous God, then we also automatically start to think that maybe David is someone who a mighty and righteous God would prove worthy. That David deserved what God gave him. But not me. Right? We hear this triumphant, this, this victorious psalm, this praise to God that David was defended, that David was protected, that David was provided for, because David was probably worthy of things that I'm not. Right? Things that, that I've done, David didn't do. Things that I'm guilty of, David, David didn't struggle with that way. David didn't have those temptations. Right? This is the thing that shame does with us. It's this lens that we see the whole world around us and so how we even can be distorted in our interpretation of scripture because we can start to think that David was so good, so wise, so handsome, so strong, so mighty. He was worthy to be worshiped by the people around him except for by God. And even God protected him. Right? David was worthy of all those things. That's the distortion that shame does to us. We look at others and think they are so worthy, so honorable, so good, and we continue to look at ourselves and think we're not worthy. We have no value. But that's not who David was, right? He seems to affirm that even in, in, in Psalm 18. He says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt. 
So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Right, David is saying in Psalm 18, God has protected me because I was righteous. God has protected me because I was free from guilt. God has protected me because I did everything I was supposed to do. And that's what we might expect, right? That's what we might expect when we we look at this through this lens of shame or guilt or, or fear or even just confusion, and we see that God is giving these things to David, and we think, he's not gonna give these things to me. He's not gonna protect me. He's not gonna defend me. I'm not worthy. David was worthy to be saved, but I'm not. David deserves these things, but I don't. But in Psalm 51, we see a very different response from David. In Psalm 51, we, right, in Psalm 18, we have this picture of David's military career, how, how God protected him from his enemies. It's, it's over the course of his life, but in Psalm 51, it's a response to an event in his life that is his utter failure. In verse one, it says this, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. That's very different than Psalm 18. It's a whole tonal shift. So what happened? What takes David from being this triumphant, victorious king at the end of his life to this moment of his life when in utter despair? How does that happen? How does David flip like that? He's human. He's a human being. And in particular, if you look in the subtitle, it says that this is a psalm of David when Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we need to know what happened there. Well, David was king, and he'd been victorious in battle many times over, and now in his kingdom, he's reigning. And his armies go out to battle, but he stays home. Now, that's a, that's a big red flag right there. This is how the story starts. It, his armies get sent out, but David stays in his palace. He stays in his house. He wants to be far from the battle and stay where it's comfortable, Now, the king should be out there. Even if not at the front lines, he should be out there fighting and directing and leading his soldiers to defend his country, his nation, his kingdom from the enemies that are attacking. But he decides to send them and stay home. And while he's home, he sees this woman bathing. Now, this isn't something that's strange for her to do. This isn't something that's supposed to put any kind of guilt on her, but him in a higher position, physically on his home probably, looks out onto the city and sees this woman bathing and she's attractive. And her name's Bathsheba. And so he summons her to his home. And there he sleeps with her. Now what he finds out is, not only is this woman already married, but now she's pregnant and her husband is a soldier out at war. So he figures he's gotta cover it up. He's gotta cover it up, so what he's gonna do, he's gonna bring that soldier back. He'll stay with his wife for a few nights. Of course they'll do things married people do. And then he'll go back to war. And when she's pregnant, it'll be easy. Cover it up. 
But this guy, he doesn't do that. In fact, he's so devoted to his, his fellow soldiers and to his king that he sleeps in David's couch. And he doesn't even go home. He says, no, that's not right for me. While everyone else is at battle, I'm just gonna stay here, king. I, I, I worship the God or I, whatever it is that stirs in him, he's devoted to David. And so he won't do that. Bathsheba's still pregnant. And so now David chooses to escalate the thing by, by sending him back out into battle. And when he's out in battle, he directs the, the armies to pull back and allow him to be killed. And so Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is killed at war. And now David has an opening to take her for his own. This is a story of, of murder. This is a story of, of adultery. This is a story of, of essentially rape, at least from the power struggle. This isn't a story of a mighty king that God is, is excited to celebrate. But this is a judgment that people are gonna have against the, the scriptures, right? This is, this is the judgment that people are gonna raise against God, that, that they knew it. They knew that God was just this fickle judge who, who chooses his favorites, picks his best friends, and everyone else has to suffer the consequences. This is the king that God, that God chose, David, who would do these things. Certainly not. Certainly if he was a good God, he wouldn't do that. And yet this is the same David that wrote Psalm 18. Is this what God wants? No. It's not crazy for David to do this. Right? It, it doesn't even stand out. If you look out through history, kings did this kind of thing. Right? Kings were in power. Kings were, in many countries, divine, especially at this time. They were equivalent to a god or they were a son of God. They had all authority and all power to do whatever they wanted. They could take many wives, they could have concubines and, and mistresses, they, they could go and declare war on whoever they wanted, try to take the resources that they wanted. They had power to do anything. Think about history. We see even much more worse things from emperors in Rome like Nero. We think about the, the, the travesty of Henry VIII circling, just trying to find a son, going through wife after wife after wife. I mean, even U.S. presidents have had sex scandals. This isn't different for someone in power. David hasn't done anything that would even probably cause most people to stop and pause, except in their culture, maybe. But from the outside, David was just being a king, doing whatever he wanted. And so does God care? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. This is not what God wants. This is, this is the opposite of what God wants for his king, for his kingdom, for his people. And so David is a real person, right? And the Bible doesn't shy away from that. The Bible talks about real people in real life situations that make real mistakes. But it doesn't mean that that's what God desires, even for people in authority, even for people with power, even for people with responsibility, the mistakes they make aren't always what God desires. And it's clear in this story because David marries Bathsheba and thinks everything's gonna be fine, right? Well, this is just what kings do. This is, this is my new wife and, and she's pregnant and she's gonna have our child and everything's gonna be great. Except a prophet from God comes to David and tells him a story. And in that story, David starts to understand that it's, that there's something wrong about what he did. And when Nathan reveals that the story is about him, David is convicted to the core and he pens this psalm in response, in repentance, understanding that he has sinned against God. 
right? Understanding that he has made an utter mockery of the faith that he proclaims. Understanding that he's made a terrible mistake. Right, and so in between these two Psalms, we have David in his highest of highs, celebrating the glory of God and what he's done, and now in the lowest of lows, recognizing his life. is worthless compared to who God is. His mistakes make him feel ashamed and guilty. God, do something. I, 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 can't, I can't believe what I've done, God. He, he's cut to the core. And he writes these words, crying out to God, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions, wash me. He feels dirty. He feels helpless. He says he's sinned against you only, God, and done what is evil in your sight. And that's the reality, right? I mean, certainly he's made decisions that have been sins or, or actions of, that have caused harm to other people, right? To Bathsheba, to her husband, to their family, the broad strokes of whatever other ramifications there may have been. But at the foundation, sin is against God. Right? The mistakes that he's made, the choices that he's made to, to go against what God has called him and commanded him to do. To take, his matter, take matters into his own hands and to seek after whatever he wants, whatever will satisfy him, whatever he desires and, to, and take it. That sin is against God. That sin is against the righteous and holy God who placed him as king, who in that community would not only had responsibility to lead in the battles, but to lead in, in their faith, in their worship of the Lord. And in that position, he's, he's shirked both, right? He's not at war with the soldiers. He's not at war leading his armies. He's at home. And he's certainly not showing the character of God through these actions, his sin is against the Lord. But he's convicted. Right? He doesn't say, well, this is what kings do and move on. He's convicted. And he feels that guilt of what he's done. He feels the weight of his sin. But he doesn't stay that way. And that's a good thing. Because the reality is, is that what David could be tempted to do and what we are tempted to do is that guilt can do one of two things. That guilt can weigh on us and it can, it can work in us and it can convict us and want us to do something different, recognizing what we've done wrong and try to make amends, try to bring healing, try to, try to seek after forgiveness or it can bring shame, right? That conviction of guilt can continue to work and, and plant those seeds in us and say that we need to pull away, we need to pull out, we need to hide, we need to cover up, we need to do something else. We don't need people's attention on these parts of our lives. We don't want them over here to look over there. And certainly it doesn't mean that we draw closer to God. It means we pull away. Because God doesn't want us. Not like this, not after what we've done. So we have this, this battle that can, that can wage war inside of us, pulling us. If the conviction is coming from God, that, that weight of what we've done, that guilt even, that can draw us closer to him or can drive us away if we let it. 
David responds by drawing closer. In verse seven, it says this, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop is like this branch of leaves that they would use for religious ceremonies. And I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your willing spirit. David knows that forgiveness is inward out, right? He's, he's fully embraced and recognized that what he's done is utterly wrong. He hasn't made any mistakes, or excuse me, he hasn't made any excuses. He's made plenty of mistakes. Right? He, he recognizes that what God needs to do is, is forgive him, right? Because that is his only hope. It's his only hope is for God to work in his heart, to bring him cleansing, to, to renew him, to, to give him forgiveness, to remind him of salvation. It's the only hope. And the reality is, is that we have the same problem within us. Maybe we haven't made the mistakes that David has, but we make mistakes every day. I, I have to apologize to Lauren constantly, right? For tones and for things I've said and, and for things I haven't been listening to or things I haven't realized before. That's just one person, one relationship I have in my life. And there's temptations, right? There's temptations to be greedy or there's temptations to be lustful or there's, right? Every single one of us deals with these, tem these temptations. The reality is, is that sin is not something that only David dealt with. It's not something that only kings deal with. It's something that we all deal with. Every single one of us wants to make our own life our own way. And if that's good for God, as far as the words that he's given us in the commandments and the laws or the rules or whatever he's, he's shaped to, for us to understand, then great, but if it's not, then forget it, because this is what we want, right? It, it, and so if it's easy or, or if it's fun or, or if it's enjoyable to be generous, then I'll be generous. But also like if I really want this car and I really want this house and I really want this retirement account or I want this number in my bank account, it's just as easy to be greedy. It's just as easy to seek after those things, to try to build those things up. And all of us deal with that. And when we're talking about sin being against God and not just against other people, we have to start to recognize that his perfection puts the standard at such an unattainable reach that all sin starts to become equal. Not to excuse the harm that it does, not to excuse what David did in the sense that it doesn't matter. But when we recognize God's holiness, we feel just as guilty as he did. Right, Paul calls himself the sinner of all sinners. This is the guy who's planting churches all over the Roman Empire because he recognized how many mistakes he'd made. He'd recognize how, fall, how short he fell of God's standard. He'd recognize that he'd sinned against him. And so have you. And so have I. And that's the problem. Because even if we want to be in a relationship with God, we find ourselves confronted with the reality of guilt and shame and maybe hopelessness. We have sinned. We've rebelled against God. We have said, God, that sounds great, but my way's better. The direction I want to go is the direction I'm going to go, is the direction I have gone. It doesn't matter what you want. 
Or maybe in that way it's good, but in this way it's different. You don't understand this about my life. You don't understand why I need this. You don't understand why I want this. You don't understand, God. That's sin. Right? It's in our nature. It's in our flesh. It's just this, this inward desire to think we know best. That was Adam and Eve's mistake is when they have this temptation, it was that God told them not to do this thing, but they're gonna do it anyway because they think it's gonna be better for them. They're gonna say, it doesn't matter what God wants. This is what I want. David knew what he was doing, right? He he tried to cover it up immediately because he knew it was a mistake that he could get caught for. And again, as king, probably no one's gonna hold him accountable to that. And so his guilt, his shame, it was before God. He was convicted and so he thought he'd hide it. And when hiding it didn't work, he'd cover it up. And when covering it up didn't work, he turned to God and repented. He turned to God and recognized his own emotions, his own feelings, his own sorrows, and repented. That's what we see in the Psalms. Throughout this whole summer, we've seen these different emotions, these different responses that in every single occasion, in every single time in life, people are experiencing real things, right? They're experiencing the joys that God is good, that he's provided, that he's been their defender, and they celebrate him and they praise him, right? And in in sorrow and in grief, their their agony, whether it's because of family suffering from health issues or or because of poverty or because of someone who's done wrong to them, right? Like this agony that they're suffering, they turn to God and they cry out to him and he's there and he listens and he brings comfort and they praise him, right? Or, Or in midst of sin and sorrow and guilt and shame, you cry out to God and he hears you. That's the beauty of the Psalms is it's real and it's raw and it applies to our lives because we're real people. It doesn't hide from the realities of the things that we experience. It helps us to understand what that means in light of a sovereign God, in light of a God who loves us, in light of a God who is real and sees us in the midst of our joys, in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of our shame, and doesn't want us to hide from him, wants us in all of it to turn to him, to pray to him, to sing to him, to seek after him. And the beauty of the reality of our sin and guilt is that God first sought after us, right? When we see that that we are sinners, we start to recognize that we are in need of salvation, just as David says, deliver me from blood guiltness, God. Oh, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Save me. God, save me. God, forgive me. Forgive me, God. I, I, I can't believe I did that. Help me. Father, I need you. God wants us to turn to him. But God is righteous. He is good. He is holy. And in order for him to maintain those things and still be a God who loves us, there had to be a way to unite us to him, to cover up that guilt, to overcome that shame, that guilt, that sin. And that's why Jesus comes. Jesus comes to bear his life on the cross, not just to look cool, Right? Not to come and be a wise teacher and to just make friends while he's here. Not just to, to tell people a different way to live, 
but to sacrifice himself for us, to take upon himself the punishment that is due for that sin, not just my sin, but your sin and the sin of the world, to take upon himself that judgment, that wrath of God in such a way that his blood being shed brings us new life, right? Through Christ's death, we have life. And we start to see the salvation that David longs for. And we can experience that when we've embraced it. When we declare to God, we believe. When we cry out to Jesus, I will follow you. When we recognize that it's his blood that was shed for us. Our guilt and shame are covered over by the cross. And so we can respond as David does in the end of this psalm. Deliver me from my blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise me. See, what David is saying is, is as he's gone through this psalm, he's expressed his inner guilt. He's cried out to God for salvation, right? For rescue. He's cried out to God for forgiveness, for what he's done, for healing. And as he's done that, he started to recognize that when, when he experiences that, when he feels that, then he, he, he will have this transformation, right? In his heart and then in his actions, And what he recognizes in these verses is that God first and foremost desires the heart. He desires us to have these hearts that have been changed, to have these lives that are transformed from the inward out in such a way that the sacrifices mean nothing, right? If we don't have these hearts changed, the sacrifices are worthless. It's easy for people in religious communities to just continue to do the things that they're supposed to do and never have any care for what God wants, it doesn't really matter. I go to church on Sundays. I give on the, online now. Right? I read my Bible. I pray. I check the boxes. It's legalism. And there was legalism in his day. Right? There was legalism in Jesus' day. He had these Pharisees wandering around, these religious teachers who knew the Bible better than everybody. Don't neglect them to say that they didn't know the Bible, that they didn't, they didn't do things like they said they did. They did. Right? They prayed a lot. They fasted more than anybody. They looked great on the outside, and Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. So everything looked all together on the outside, but inside there was no life. And the hope of the gospel is life. And so when David says this again, that, that the burnt offerings won't matter, it's because God didn't give sacrifices to the Israelites in order to make atonement for their sin. He didn't give them these religious rites or these acts, these things to do, just so that he would not like, be mad at them anymore. He was giving them something to point to something different. We know this because the, the, the law gives different sacrifices for different people in different phases of life or stages of life or, or economic status. Right? And so if you're a king, you're gonna give one kind of animal that's big and expensive. And if you're uh, in poverty, maybe a bird, right? something small that you could afford. 
right? The reality is that these sacrifices are very different. Does that mean that, that kings are way more sinful than someone who's poor? I mean, maybe in David's case, but no. That's not the disparity that they're talking about. That's the grace of God to say, it's not about how much money you have. It's not about what you can do. Your forgiveness, the, the atonement that you're trying to make, the relationship that you're trying to build between you and me, it's not about that. Right? This sacrifice is ultimately about you recognizing that what you do in sin is bring death into your life and to the lives of people around you. Right? Paul says that the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus died on the cross, and that's what those sacrifices point to. It's his death. And so the forgiveness that that they find in the sacrifices is ultimately not in the death of a sheep or a pigeon. It's in the death of Christ. And so now in in our day, after that has come, after his death and resurrection, we we don't make those same sacrifices because the sacrifice has been made for us. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross makes atonement for us. And that, that should change us. That should transform us. That should, that should work inward and, and become outward. And so there's, there's no excuse. There's no, no barrier. There's no, there's no shame. There's no guilt that holds us back because Christ has covered that with his blood. And we have hope. And we can have peace and we can have joy and we can have new life in Christ. And what God desires is a changed heart, a repentant heart, a heart that recognizes and is honest about what we've done and still turns to him and praises him and loves him because he loved us first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for this day. I'm grateful to be able to worship together with you, Father. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us this morning as we remember the sacrifice that your son made for us, that in his blood, in his giving of life, we have new life. God, we praise you that we could celebrate that today and every day, that we no longer need to have shame for our sin, Father, because we can be renewed and refreshed. Amen. Amen.